So basically, the last two weeks, I wouldn't have been able to record anything because, mm-hmm. uh, very stupidly, the uh, university, for some reason, they wanted to disable Adobe licenses for all students not doing summer semester. Why? Why? I don't don't I don't know why, but what happened was they forgot that graduate students don't actually stop working during the right. summer term. Right. And so they just mass disabled everyone's licenses. Uh, and yeah, I lost access to Photoshop, Audition, the entire suite. Okay. <laughs> uh, then, you know, so... I wrote a rather frustrated email to them and they finally reinstated it after right. like a couple of days. Okay. Um, at least that sounds relatively responsive. Yeah, more or less. More, <laughs> could be worse, yeah. right? Could be like, could be, oh, we're out of, worse. you know, it's locked down, we're out of office, you're on your own. I mean, to be fair, right, you know, and, and kudos to many of the university uh, staff. Um, some of the, you know, departments that I didn't expect would still be running were running. So, for example, right. library services has been excellent. Okay. Uh, I am currently writing a paper with an undergraduate that involves, you know, literature review. So... A lot of it is going back to the old, really, really old literature, 1800s, early 1900s kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, and pulling out, you know, German manuscripts. I think there were some Finnish manuscripts as well uh, to track down old records of this and that. And yeah, the interlibrary loan people were still working. So they were That's able good. to track down some of these, you know, really obscure manuscripts and get them scanned in and sent over to me. That's impressive. I mean, I would have thought like, I mean, one of the big um, pluses, right, of access to... Uh, or, okay, one of the big pluses of being um, a graduate student and being, like, present on campus is access to physical library materials. And I would have thought that would be one of the things that is, like, most missed, I suppose. But um, it sounds like they are doing okay on that front. Although, I mean, okay, on the other hand, I, I, I don't know what it is like now because, obviously... Libraries have been digitizing for quite a while already. Well, I, I think the digitizing thing is a bit separate because what we're talking about in this case is uh, manuscripts that are rare. So, right. you know, even if you wanted it, right, it, there may not even be a physical copy in your library. Right. Uh, so, yeah, for example, true. there yeah. is, you know, there is this one guy who's done a whole t- bunch of stuff on this group of insects that I'm looking at right now. And I think most of his stuff is at the Michigan State University Library. Right, okay. So what am I going to do, right? So what I think, you know, this is the thing that a lot of people as well, you know, in undergrads don't realize about academic libraries is that yep. there is such a thing called interlibrary loan. Yeah. Right? Yep. And that's, uh, you know, that, that basically means that, you know, the librarians talk to each other and they're able to, to, you know, get materials either shipped physically from one library to another or scanned and then emailed over between libraries, yep. which is amazing. Yeah. You know, I think it's, it's a great service. Yeah, I mean, like the if you think about like the academic um, library services, there is a reason why often library studies is a whole field by itself because it is a like the it's not um, a trivial problem to categorize knowledge and to be able to then fish it out when you need it. Yep, I mean, this is the entire field of not just library studies but museum studies as well. Yes, yes. Yeah, definitely. Right. There is the curation, and you know, in, in very they're very similar in, in multiple respects. So you have the curation aspect. How do I, um, you know, ensure that everything is well? I mean, there is the well, no, there is a data 
cataloging aspect and then there is the curation aspect which is how do I present the information in a manner that, that makes sense to a, to a member of the public coming in yep. or to an expert coming in as well yeah yeah okay I mean so, yeah that all of that aside I mean we haven't recorded for three weeks no and, we haven't and um, that's just stuff happening um, originally <laughs> I think three weeks ago I pleaded off this podcast because I was busy with um, a course called Mathematical Thinking and Computer Science, which I finished in one weekend. And uh, yeah, so recording time would have been right in the middle when I was just uh, um, chugging along. And uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I kind of dis- not, didn't want to disrupt the momentum. Yep. Um, I think the subsequent week, I don't remember what it was. But whatever it is, it's, yeah, stuff. Um, so, since we haven't recorded for a month, what has happened in the last month? Like, is there anything interesting besides your Adobe subscription being Nope, nothing stopped? happened at all. You know, it's been a very quiet period in world history, you know. <laughs> I, 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 you know, yeah, it's otherwise, you know, I mean, 2020 will pass relatively unremarked upon in the history books because of just how little, you know, things happened uh, yeah. in this in this interesting period. There were no, you know, major viral outbreaks, no uh, political no riots, upheaval. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> it's well, I mean, all that aside, and, you know, I think for the most part, we are relatively privileged to be insulated from most of this. Yes. To, yes. I mean, you know, m- much, I mean, it's not to say that we are completely insulated, but, you know, we're less affected by it than, say, most people elsewhere in the world. Yep, definitely. So, um, you know, yeah. And it's just like in, in some very simple practical respects that um, our work can continue relatively undisturbed, that, yep. you know, there's like, we are not like homeless or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I, I agree. Yeah. I agree. And you know, I mean, even among academics, I consider myself extremely lucky because uh, my research at this stage is not dependent on me physically being in the lab. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I know of colleagues who, I mean, th- their work cannot proceed without access to a lab. And because right, all yeah. the labs are still closed to a large extent, they can't do anything. You know, I, I, I Right now, you know, my work is literature review based or, you know, data right. analysis of, of existing data sets. So that gives me the, the, the luxury of being able to sit in front of my computer and pretending to work uh, rather than, you know, uh, yeah. wanting to work and then not having even the opportunity to do so. Right. So I actually went out for lunch today. Um, How is the outside the world? Time, for the first time in like, God knows, I, I don't know when was the last time I went out for lunch, to be honest. Um, <laughs> but it was a long time ago, or it feels like a long time ago. Um, I, like, there is a part of me that is kind of like, no, just, just stay in until as much of this has blown over as possible. But there yeah. is also the other part of me that is just like, um, I would like to see the outside world. <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, today... I went out for lunch with my with my parents. My sister has actually gone back to work. Um but I think I have I have thoughts about that, but I think I will say them off the record. 
Well, I have actually been out a couple times. Uh-huh. Uh, purely because, you know, uh, number one, I'm gaining a lot of weight just sitting uh-huh. here doing yep, computer work. Yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> um, so over the last week, I actually went out bird watching twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it really did um, highlight just how this sedentary life has negatively affected me to some extent. So I went right. to Bishan Park. Uh-huh. Uh, what is this? What well, I went out on Thursday to Bishan right. Park because I, I and I've been meaning to go for a long ass time. It's just that um, this is the thing, right? When you want to go bird watching, you have to get up early. Yes. And when you're on the computer, that tends to not incentivize happen. staying up late. Yes. And so then you sleep late and you wake up late, and then that cycle perpetuates itself. So finally on Thursday. I managed to get up at 6 a.m. in the morning. Okay. Right. Got ready, got out, uh, managed to hit Bishan Park about an hour after sunrise. It was Uh decent. And I walked six kilometers. I walked the entire length of the park and I doubled back a couple of times to see if I, you know, miss anything. Right. Um, And my feet let me know just how much it hated me for that. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's... So my calves and my feet are still in pain. Uh-huh. But never mind, on Friday, I climbed Bukit Timah Hill. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, this is... Uh, well, the reason for doing that is not just because you know, Bukit Timah is a nice place to visit and yada yada. But um, a really, really interesting bird just showed up. And I could go on for a full hour about this bird. Um, it's not got a very flattering name. It's called the Apornis, E-R-P-O-R-N-I-S. Yes, it does have the word porn in its name. Okay. Um, now, the Apornis is an interesting, but it's, I mean, it's not that interesting to look at. It's a small bird, slightly yellowish. It's got a white belly. It used to be called the white-bellied Euhena. Um, okay. And it showed up for the first time ever in Singapore at Bukit Dima Hill. There's right. photographic evidence, uh, and, and it's a really, really exciting thing. Uh, for for various reasons, so so going to to the very core of it, taxonomically speaking, the Apornis is a very unusual bird. Um, right. Okay. I mentioned just now that it used to be called a Euhena. So Euhenas mm-hmm. were at some point in history classified together with the babblers and warblers. Okay. Um, and and you know the the problem with that grouping is that it, that grouping is what we call a garbage bag taxon. So it's like Wait, oh, I don't, a garbage bag taxon. A garbage bag taxon. It's you know oh I don't know where this bird fits. I'll just it looks it looks about that you know uh, something drab and noisy. I'll put it in this group. Okay. <laughs> of babblers and warblers, um, that has changed significantly over the last decade. There have been multiple revisions of the babblers and warblers. In fact, the most recent one just came out last year, and it has completely changed the way we we view the babblers. But regardless, the Apornis. Uh, has now been uh, discovered to be, number one, its own genus. Okay. Number two, it is grouped together at the family level with vireos, which is very unusual. So yes, pawn vireo. Um, okay. The vireos are very interesting because most of them are in North America and South America. Right, okay. Of the entire family of Virios, so the Virionidae family, there are only two radiations of old world Virios. One of them is the Apornis, and the other one is the Shrike Babblers, of which I think there are about two or three species only. Okay. 
So that's a very unusual phenomenon, but it's not, it's not you know, the only time we observe this kind of weird disjunction between the new and the old world. Uh, right. Where you have you know, a, a, a group of birds that is, are predominantly old world, but then you find one or two representatives in the... Sorry, uh, uh, predominantly the new world, then you find one or two representatives in the old world. Right. But, you know, from a biogeographical perspective, it's really, really freaking unusual. Okay. Yeah. So, and the other thing is that it sounds like a tit. So it, 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 you know, it looks like a, well, it superficially resembles a, a, a bunch of yuhinas, which are, uh, uh, you know, mostly found in China, et cetera, et right. cetera. And then it sounds like a tit, but it's actually a vireo. It's, it's such a confusing bird. Okay. So I, I so, have zero idea what to make of anything that you just said. <laughs> like, so what does, I, I, I guess that's like, you know, kind of like what the, what some of our teachers, like, you know, in junior college or whatever would, would say when you made like, um, an argument, which is like, okay, so what? So right. you've, you've told me all these interesting things, but, <laughs> but what's the, what's the implication or what's the consequence of it? Well, I mean, I mean, this well, not much really, unless you're an ornithologist, but the, the, <laughs> the, 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 the really interesting thing is, you know, how we get these, well, I mean, and this is part of the work that I do as a, as a, as a biogeographer, right? The question is, how do birds get to their present-day distributions? Right, okay. How do they come to be distributed the way they are, given what we know of the taxonomic uh, history? Right. And, and, and this is interesting, or, or the evolutionary history for that matter. So, you know, I'm working on a group of birds called pittas, and mm -hmm. pittas are found, uh, two species in Africa, right? Okay. The African pitta and the green-breasted pitta. And then you have like 20-odd species in Asia, mm -hmm. all the way out to Melanesia. Um, the right. question is, did they start in Africa and disperse into Asia, or did they start in Asia and disperse out into Africa? Right. Right? And not as, you know, not everything is as it seems, because, you know, you have extinctions that you may not necessarily know about. I mean, yep. unless you have a fossil, it's really hard to infer the existence of extinctions. I think we talked right. about this a long time ago when we were talking about um, uh, uh, inferring uh, changes in speciation rates. Right. That yes. Interesting paper. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, and 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 you know, I mean, with lots of organisms, but with birds in particular, because they have reasonably well studied, we know what the species are. Right. There are all lots of these weird cases of birds having very unusual distributions. So within the mm -hmm. uh, going back to pittas, um, the sister to all pittas. So pittas are what we call the old world subossines. Right. You have pitters, you have okay. broadbills. But of the okay. old world sub there is one bird that is found in the new world. All right. And it's called the sapayoa. Uh, okay. I think it's found in Colombia and Ecuador. Uh, okay. But it's not easy to find. Uh, and the, the scientific name of the sapayoa is sapayoa enigma, <laughs> which <laughs> gives you a sense as to uh, what people made of it initially. It's like, people are like, what the hell is this? Right? Right, okay. <laughs> And you know the subossines are fascinating birds because they are they are, they form some of the largest radiations of songbirds on Earth, but most of that is in the New World. And the New World subossines are you know very very diverse group of birds, extremely species. And then you have this very small group of the Old World subossines, and of that you have one that's all the way in the New World, and that's confusing the heck out of everyone. Right. Interesting. It's, yeah. And so you know how how these distributions came to be, we suspect you know number one. Either some of these birds are more, you know, some of these families are much more widespread than we used to think. So, mm -hmm. for example, right, hummingbirds today, you will not find a single hummingbird outside of North and South America. Right, okay. 
right? They're strictly new world only. Right. But, uh, and this is not that recent, well, not that, it was a relatively recent find. Um, there was a hummingbird fossil that was unearthed in Germany. Okay. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, basically evidence that the hummingbirds used to be found in the old world as well. It's just that they all got wiped out somehow. Right. Interesting. Right. Yeah. Wow. And um, what else? There was also, in fact, just last week, there was a discovery of a old, a new world subossine in Europe as well. So clearly, the distribution <laughs> must have been much more widespread, right? So, wow, so there okay. is there is this 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 you know possibility that okay, some of these birds that we now know have restricted ranges used to be a lot more widespread across the world. But then there's the other question as well of um, long range dispersal. This is what we think happened with the sapayoa, okay. which is that for some reason some ancestor of sapayoa just decided I'm going to fly across the ocean, right? And it's not and necessarily it's that it was a population or like it could be a it could have been a restricted population it's not necessarily that it was a large range that was reduced is that right yeah right, it could okay. just have been like a, a weird founder effect like you know like with right. the galapagos finch darwin's finches right yep. you have some freak hurricane or some you know just just some weird bunch of individuals it is undertake a long range dispersal uh, event right. and they colonize a new landmass and you know right. they remain there ever since uh that's what we think also happened with um and i just learned about this very recently because i'm you know i'm not entirely off favor with my american birds but um uh uh there is this one group of birds that are really beautiful really interesting looking mostly in china uh, mm -hmm. called the parrot bills well well okay. east asia and southeast asia the parrot bills they look like regular birds, but with parrot beaks. <laughs> okay. Uh, weird looking pieces of shit. Um, and most of them are in the mountains of North Thailand, you know, China, the Himalayas, right. basically. Okay. The Eastern Himalayan range. And you have one species of parrot bill called the wren tit that's only found in California. <laughs> like, it's the only representative of its entire family in the New World, and it's only found on the western coast of the uh, United States. Right. So that also seems likely to have been, you know, a one-off dispersal event, and it just realized, oh, you know what, this is a pretty good spot. I'll, I'll, I'll hang around here. Right. That's interesting because I mean, like, with at least okay, I I know very little, right, about you know, the genetic population side of things, but um, like the kind of the kind of classic way that we know that humans came out of Africa is that there is more genetic diversity in Africa than outside of it, right? Yeah. At, at yeah. least as I understand it, right? So the assumption is that a subpopulation left Africa and then that subpopulation has a limited um, gene pool and that's mm -hmm. why you see a more restricted genetic distribution outside of Africa. And then like, this is also, you know, kind of, how we roughly know people dispersed throughout the world. And you see the founder effect in um, known colonies. Like I think Quebec famously has um, a relatively restricted pool um, just because it was a very small founder colony that arrived yep. in Quebec. Um, but I mean, I, I was thinking about, like when you look at it from the, from the genetics point of view, I'm, I'm sure... Uh, I mean, I, I say it like it's 
as if it's an easy thing to do, like go and find this like one particular bird or like find a specimen of this bird and then like if you if you can um compare the if you compare the genes to like its um supposed siblings, like we will be able to map out all this stuff. But I was just thinking moving away from birds because that's not I, I don't know how to talk about birds. Um, hmm. I think yep. that's much more your thing. But I mean, when you when you think about it from like the linguistics point of view, obviously when we talk languages, right, uh, and we talk about language distributions, um, there is always the... I mean, we don't see this level of disjointedness in language. But I realize that is also a human bias because... For example, right, when you talk about, say, um, a language like Vietnamese, right, um, we would talk about the range of Vietnamese in this sense as being relatively restricted to Southeast Asia. But I realized, like, if we were looking at that from the way that a population geneticist would, would look at it, um, the actual distribution of a language like Vietnamese is actually very large, because you are not looking exclusively where it's spoken natively, right? But you are also looking um, at places where any Vietnamese speakers have dispersed. Well, Migrated, where it's sampleable at least, you know. I mean, where, put it this yeah. way, right? And this is the thing also with, with languages, right? Can you document an extinct language? Can you, if, if a language has gone extinct... Yes, and that's you, there were no records of it. Legitimate problem, yeah. Would you know where? Would you, yeah. would you know if it exists? If, if a tree falls in the forest, when no yeah. one's there. But I think that there is this other problem with language, which is that language is not passed down genetically. <laughs> well, I mean, many. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, population genetics looks exclusively at. Well, it's hard to generalize to that extent, but yeah, to a large extent, we look at heritable traits, right? Right. Um, I mean, I could go into the technicalities of how we infer population size change and demographic history but that I think would bore the pants off everyone <laughs> but suffice it to say we do actually have tools right to to really you know well I mean and this is something that really has only happened in the last two decades or so uh, right. once we started looking at um, you know more than just one gene when we started looking at you know multiple sites across the genome we started being able to to use more sophisticated tools to infer right. how populations have changed over time. Right. And you can you know, you can infer this by looking at the the way in which mutations accumulate across the genome. Okay. So when you had, say, in the past, you know, just one gene, and usually it was a mitochondrial gene because that's easy to amplify. You're not mm-hmm. gonna it's it's hard to get a full picture of the population dynamics because number one, it's just one locus in the gene okay. in, the, in, in the whole genome. Number two, it's on the mitochondria, which means that it is only capturing the maternal lineage rather right. than the true lineage of an organism. Right. Right, the biparental lineage. Um now, these days we are able to not only, you know, sequence parts of genomes but entire genomes. And when you have the whole genome, you are you know, you have got long stretches of, of DNA for you to compare against each other. Um, right. Yeah. And, and you know, what, what we do is we, we apply this, this sickle framework coalescent theory. Okay. Uh, which I, I don't think I can explain thoroughly, but basically what it says is that when you have two individuals or you've sampled two haplotypes, right? Okay. So you've sampled, say, okay, let's just take one site and I take 
a particular site that's aligned and I compare the two of them and they have, you know, different identities, right? Okay. How many, how much time must pass before these two coalesce into a single right. state, right? Into wow. a common okay. ancestor. Right. Right. And you can actually use this framework uh, to estimate, you know, a whole bunch of things. Basically, right. the development of the coalescent in, I think, about 1983 opened the door to a whole new world of population genetic analysis. Right. I'm thinking about something that is um, that I literally just watched before we started recording today because I am doing this... Um, I'm working through the discrete math specialization on Coursera. Oh, well, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's intro to discrete math and it's really... Um, it's, I won't say that it's like introductory, you know, it's like there, there is a level of difficulty, but you know, for anybody who is actually interested in going to fields that require discrete math is extremely simple. It's very, very basic <laughs> level. Right. So right. it's non-trivial, but it's also, um, really nothing to be impressed by. Um, so the course that I'm on right now is uh, number theory and cryptography. And number theory was kind of described as this. They kind of started this, um, the number theory course by saying like, oh, number theory was kind of like regarded as like a toy field by mathematicians because a lot of the stuff that you could prove seemed trivial um, <laughs> until until cryptography rolled around and suddenly everyone was mm. like, oh my God, we actually really need number theory need right this. now. Yep. Yeah. Um, so I'm on the cryptography bit of, of the course and um, the uh, as as I kind of progressed through the 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 specialization I kind of found that um, I actually it's not enough to rely on what's shown in the videos um, I often find myself like you know if I get stuck I don't necessarily just stop and replay the videos until I understand what's going on I actually just go out and look for something else. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, because it seems to help to find like multiple versions of the people explaining the same theory. And then you kind mm -hmm. of get a better idea of what the original instructor is trying to, is trying to get at. So, um, although if the notation used by different people is different, that can yes, make things that more confusing. Make things, that makes things very confusing. But anyway, <laughs> uh, in this particular case, what was interesting was, um, RSA cryptography, Right is named after the three people who developed the protocol. So, um, Rivest, Shamir, and Edelman, or Edelman, or mm. I don't know how he pronounces his name. Um, because I mean, at this point, I've heard like different people say different <laughs> pronunciations. But um, yeah. so the interesting thing is on Numberphile, um, Numberphile actually has a video or several videos actually with Ron Rivest. Who is the R oh, wow. RSA? Yeah. Oh shit. So yeah, and so I was watching a video um, on RSA one twenty nine, which is a prime number, a uh, hundred twenty nine digit decimal digit prime number, that um, <laughs> they released in. I can't remember which year it was, but basically when they the RSA um, cryptography protocol depends on products of prime numbers, very large products of prime numbers. And cryptography, I mean, in a sense, right, nothing is is nothing is hundred percent secure. Right? Right. But yeah. um what we are I mean with, with cryptography, what you depend on really is the fact that 
there are things that modern computers are unable to compute efficiently. So one of the things that modern computers are still not able to compute efficiently is um, prime factorization. Like we can't do it efficiently for very large numbers. Is that right? Oh, yeah. shit. Yeah. Okay, so, I did not know that. Huh. Yeah. And so if you um, are able to, you know, if your what RSA is, uh, is effectively your public key, right, is actually just mm-hmm. um, a prime. Uh, no, sorry. It's the product of primes. And then another number that I cannot remember, which I should go back and revise, right? And then your private key is actually the answer, right, to which two products make up that humongous prime product, um, product oh, of two primes. Oh my primes. God. Wait, it's yeah. that simple. I mean... It's actually very oh, simple, oh, yeah. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Okay. And wow. so what happens is somebody sends you a message using the the public key, Right, and then you decrypt it using your private key. And the reason that your private key can decrypt it is because um, your pairs of primes, right, they are divisible into the, the, the large prime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's basically, and people who don't have, who are not able to figure out your, the, the products of the two primes, they will try all sorts of um, possible private keys, but mm-hmm. they get gibberish back instead of plain text. Mm-hmm. So, anyway. They Holy kind shit. of yeah, it's it's very simple yeah. So they 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 published um the protocol and then they also published this number RSA one twenty nine mm-hmm. because the whole protocol depends on the um, inability of human beings and computers to quickly factorize primes right. So yes. um they're like hey this is a product this humongous number is a product of two primes and um here's a hundred bucks for anybody who can figure out what two prime numbers make up this huge number, (laughs) right? And um, they actually predicted, they did some kind of of back-of-the-envelope math and they said, okay, we kind of predict that it will take about 40 quadrillion years to compute this. Mm. And um, it was actually broken in 17 years. Um, Oh. Yeah. Wow. And so, I mean, the solution to that is don't use 129-digit products or primes. Use like sure. 200 or 300 digits, right? But um, <laughs> I think Ron Rivest, he was actually saying that he the the 40 quadrillion years, right? Um, there are, of course, some, num- some f- numbers that go into it, right? To, you know, to figuring out how long it would take you to do this kind of computation. And, of course, mm-hmm. you factor in the current... Um, power of um, computers available to um, the most dedicated uh, attacker. You figure out like the rate of increase in computing power and speed and so on and so forth. But he actually said the one thing that you cannot account for is the improvement in algorithms. Because right. that brings down your computing time by... Well, I mean, as in, in this particular case, right, like um, humongous uh, factor. Yep. And it is very hard to predict the rate at which new discoveries will be made in things like cryptography and number theory, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And it's like if you are making um, a calculation based on an obsolete algorithm, right, it's an it's 
orders of magnitude slower than if you are using the most up-to-date one. Um, and I mean, I think the the thing about when you're when you're talking about the ability to compute things like um, the distribution of you know populations of basically anything, right? Or to you know compare the genome sequence of you know pairs of whatever. <laughs> I'm yep, like I yep. w- like what what is the word I actually don't actually know but yeah it's like the thing is the the you can have the data there right but um the ability to actually make the advances un- is not always purely about what data is available it's also or, or purely about the computing power that's available like Absolutely, a lot of it yeah. comes down to like is ingenuity yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and I, right. and I that, still... That you can't really account for, yeah. Yeah, it's like you have absolutely no idea what somebody will come up with in the next, like, five or 17 years, I mean, as, it, as it were. Which which comes into the... I mean, this is something that, you know, I have to deal with on a regular basis because our data sets are getting larger and larger. And this is <clears throat> something that, you know, as as, as people who, who deal with, with uh, genes are concerned, right increasingly we have to figure out more efficient ways of processing our data because in the past it's like "Ah, i have one gene 10 genes you know okay if i have 10 genes but i have a hundred individuals that is a huge computational process as well right Right. if i find the right tree that describes the phylogenetic relationship between these 100 individuals based off of 10 genes not all the genes will agree on the topology that's number one and number two you know (laughs) there is just a question of the computational power required to do this now That was, say, 10 years ago. Today, right. I can have 10,000 uh, markers. Right? I won't call them genes, but markers across the genome for 100 individuals. Now, how am I going to do that computation? <laughs> Oof. Uh, right, and which is why, yeah. you know, increasingly a lot of people are moving towards Bayesian methods right, because right. it actually decreases the amount of time required. Well, I mean, it still takes a hell of a long time, but right. it gives you accuracy... Uh, Relatively efficiently by searching through right. the 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 Markov spa- uh, the, yeah the MCMC uh, yeah. space. Yes, I mean here's here's something else that's that's interesting. So, um, because I am currently right looking into the possibility of doing some kind of um, bachelor slash postgraduate. I don't I don't know what the term would be for 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 this particular situation. But I mean, um, part of why I'm doing the discrete math. Um, course on Coursera as it is, is that I am thinking about moving into computer science, right? Mm-hmm. Like doing some, um, it, it, it exists in this very strange space. It's, it's postgraduate coursework, but it's not graduate level work in that they expect huh? you to have a first degree, but it's not actually graduate level. But anyway, whatever it is. Right. Um, so, I mean, I was thinking, okay, so if I were to go down this route, right, what are my options after that? Um, like, would I consider, because my my primary academic interest in undergrad was actually in linguistics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, there is a demand for computational linguistics, Right. Yes. And so I was thinking, okay, like, what does computational linguistics actually look like? 
So I kind of Googled, right? And, um, you know, you pull up like Reddit and, and stuff. And um, very quickly, I was like, I don't think this is something that I would necessarily enjoy because right away, right, the comments or the responses that, you know, people asking about computational linguistics got were like, computational linguistics is a lot more computation than linguistics. Because when you are looking at linguistics, right, you are looking at the underlying structure of language. But when you are doing computational linguistics, you're often trying to solve a specific problem. And that specific problem is often more easily solved by stochastic methods. (laughs) (laughs) And Hmm. so, yeah. And so you end up with a situation where it's kind of like, you know, John Sayles, how do you pronounce his name? John Searle? John Searle? Mm, Whatever. Whatever, yeah. Yeah, okay. It's it's kind of like his, um, the Chinese room problem, right? So you are creating a a computer program of sorts where you put in some input and then it runs through some some kind of statistical analysis. Black box, yeah. It's a a black box, right? But I mean, on the inside, it is a statistical analysis and then it spits out an answer and it looks like the, your program is able to understand the language, but on the inside, it's a purely statistical process. Mm-hmm. It's not, uh, or it presumes very little about the structure of the language itself. Yeah. Um, which is, a, okay, but that's, a, that's also kind of a different problem. So um, the, the interesting thing is if you look at first language acquisition, right, we actually know that children, um, they do seem to use some kind of, I don't want to say statistical reasoning, it's not reasoning per se, but the way that children pick up um, sounds, at least, I, I, I speak only for sounds because I don't really know about the syntax or the semantics side of it, but the way that children pick up um, sounds in their native language, right, um, is actually partially um, it's not probabilistic, but it's, I guess you could say it's statistical. <laughs> it is somewhat Bayesian. I mean, like, I was trying very hard not to say Bayesian, but it is at least somewhat Bayesian in the sense that, in the sense that, um, the new children, knowledge is added on conditional on the prior. In a sense. Right. There yes. is a prior baseline that they have already accumulated and everything yep. that's added on is conditioned on this prior knowledge. Yeah, so it's kind of... So like, how okay. certain am I that what I'm hearing is correct given what I know in the past? Kind of, yes. I mean, like, this is one of the things where, as an undergrad, the first time that the suggestion is made, you're like, no, like, babies can do stats. <laughs> <laughs> right? But, like, when you look at the evidence, like, there is there is very little other way to, to, to interpret it. So they will do stuff like, okay... Um, for example, you might have um, audio um, of say um, I'm I'm thinking of a sound like wow I I don't remember the exact example that was used but if you say um, b for example mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then you say like uh, v right so those two sounds actually. Two things are two things are two features are changing in those two sounds. So you have B and you have V. 
But those yep. two sounds are, it's, it's not the best example, but it will, it will do for now. So you can actually create a kind of um, continuum or, or spectrum, right? Where you have B on one end and then you have V on the other and you have something like V or W or V in the middle. Does that make sense? Yep, yep, yep. Right? So It's um, a trait. It's a continuous trait, basically. Somewhat, yeah. In a sense. Yeah. In, in a sense, in a sense. Uh, it's not strictly continuous. Or actually, no. I, I can think of something that is continuous. So voicing um, okay, okay. can actually be made continuous. Not, not really, but this is one of the cases where it's complicated. So like English, <laughs> for example, um, if you think about a sound like P and you think it sound like B, right? Okay, so B. Um, is what's called a voiced um, bilabial plosive. And mm. per is a voiceless bilabial plosive. Um, but then, in English in particular, right, it's not the voicing by itself that determines whether something is P or B. It's what's known as voice onset time. So, when you think about per, right... Um, it's the per sound, that's the actual plosive, but mm -hmm. how long before or after the per, the puff of air happens, right, um, does, do your vocal cords start to vibrate? Right. So if you are saying b, your vocal cords start to vibrate before the plosive is ever released. Mm -hmm. And if you think about, um, like a very, very forceful, like, p sound, right? your vocal cords vibrate quite a while. Uh, they only start to vibrate quite a while after the plosive is, re is released. So that is a continuous variable. Okay, right. right? Holy shit. Yeah. yeah. And so um, if children are exposed to stimuli where your voice onset time is a modal distribution with a mode in the center, right? Mm -hmm. they, they don't learn to make a distinction between b and p. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Oh shit. Oh wow. Huh. Yeah. But if you have oh. a bimodal distribution, they start to make a a distinction that center that clusters around where the two modes are. Children are really shitty neural nets. <laughs> yeah. In a way, <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, so are we all, but you know. <laughs> yeah. So that's 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 one example of you know because it's a continuous variable you can actually um, create that kind of th thing, um, right. and I think some languages may actually have a three way distinction. Although I in that in that respect I don't think it's voice onset time. It, this is one of the things that it's kind of complicated. Like for example in Spanish, right? The distinction is not um, strictly VOT because the Spanish per right has a um, much shorter VOT than the English P. Okay. So Spanish speakers, as I understand it at least, pay much more attention to the actual voicing rather than a bimodal distribution of, of, of VOT timing. Because like in Spanish, uh, not, not in Spanish, in English rather, if your VOT time is very short, it's positive, but it's very short, right? Um... You, people will still hear that as a B. 
Okay, Even okay. though if you were to actually look at it on a spectrogram, uh, it might actually, in some languages, be a B. Uh, be a P, rather. Right. And stuff well, like that. I mean, that. this just draws down to the very basic statistical problem of discrimination and classification, right? Right, yeah. Correct. And, you know, I mean, I've, I've recently had to encounter... Uh, uh, neural nets and machine learning, not purely by choice, but because a paper wrote about it and I thought, oh, this looks interesting and then I had to, to, to dig deeper. Um, right. But yeah, no, I mean, very similar issues, right? It's a question of how do I classify two different phenomena based off prior yeah. information. Right, yeah. Um, and that doesn't always happen, right? Uh, yeah. Neural nets are dumb. <laughs> I, I actually are. have no clear idea of how they work at the moment, so... Right. Well, I mean, I've actually, I, I mean, after reading this paper, I realized I've actually been using neural nets or at least some kind of machine learning far more uh, than I thought I did. Um, and where this comes from is from uh, geographic information systems. So right. one of my side interests is cartography, making okay. maps. Yeah. Um, and um, now there is, there is a uh, really interesting problem of, okay, if I give you a map of a landscape, how would you classify it into land use types? Ooh, okay. Right? So there are two ways, broadly uh -huh. speaking, of doing so. One is an unsupervised classification. You say, okay, I want K number of clusters, cluster the map for me. Right, okay. Now, if your land use types are extremely distinct, say, for example, mm -hmm. land and water. Yeah, okay. The, and I say, okay, I want two clusters. I should be able to get a reasonably accurate cluster right? or classification. Uh, if I say I want 10 clusters, then the machine will try to force 10 clusters into right, right. a landscape where there only is realistically two different types of land use. Right. right? So that's one way. That's, a, that's using an algorithm to do an automated clustering. Right. So maybe it will run a PCA and it will you know draw centroids and stuff like that. Right. Now, the other way is supervised classification. So this is where the whole machine learning thing comes in. It's where I set a bunch of priors. So I go, okay, this particular position I know is a forest. This particular GPS coordinate I know is water. This particular GPS coordinate right. I know is urban. Okay. And the computer will take this prior information and then it will sort the rest of the map based on this prior information. Right, okay. Makes sense, right? Makes sense. Um, and then, of course, you know the people who who do this for a living will divide their empirical datasets into two. Into two, one is an empirical uh, training dataset, and one is a validation dataset. Right. Right. And so that's how they they basically validate if their algorithm, if, if the machine learning has worked, or you know the 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 effectiveness of the, of the algorithm of the machine learning algorithm that that is generated, you know, eighty percent accuracy, seventy percent accuracy, and so on and so forth. Right. Okay. So yeah, so I mean, in a sense, machine learning is not particularly anything new to me. It's just that, you know, it's got an awful name that <laughs> just throws me off. And, I, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think machine learning and um, artificial intelligence, they're both not great names for what's actually happening. Um, <laughs> because I think intelligence and learning, we have very strong prior associations for what those things mean. And it demands a high level of abstraction that these Correct. programs don't actually have. Correct. 
And yeah. I mean, the fact is when you are looking at, I mean, the fact, you know, when you talk about like clustering, for example, like, you know, if I take a, there, there is a, a program that, that um, people, you know, any, anybody working with like the spoken language um, will often use, right, in order to look at spectrograms and, and waveforms of, of uh, spoken, of, of speech, uh, which is Pratt, uh, which is mm-hmm. P-R-A-A-T, and it's uh, Dutch for speaking or to speak <laughs> okay. because it was developed at the University of Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. And um, it's it's actually, in a sense, it's very simple, right? If you think about like Pro Tools, you record stuff into it. It gives you the waveform. What Pratt does is that it gives you the, the waveform and it also gives you the spectrogram, right? So your waveform is amplitude over time. Yes. Yep. A spectrogram is frequency over time, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And um, what is uh, uh, interesting to linguists um, and phoneticians particularly. Uh, phonetics and phoneticians and phonologists, but especially phoneticians. Um, what's interesting, right, is that um, when you when you speak, right, um, what you're actually doing is you are you're you're basically shaping the sound that comes out of your mouth in particular ways. Right and acoustic phonetics deals with the question of, okay, this stuff comes out of your mouth. How do we know, using either a waveform or a spectrogram, what vowel or consonant you have just produced? Right. Right. Yeah. So, like phonetics is generally broken into like three parts: so articulatory, acoustic, auditory. So. Articulatory phonetics is how is the sound physically produced in the mouth. Acoustic phonetics is how is it physically like as sound, right? And auditory phonetics is how is it perceived when it hits oh, you know, somebody else. Yeah, this is um, when somebody else receives background it. to this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, definitely. So the acoustic side is is the most like physics um, mm-hmm. oriented side of it right so mm-hmm. um so for example vowels are differentiated by formants and the formants refer to particular um clusters of like particular um areas of um frequencies or clusters mm-hmm. of, of frequencies that um are of higher amplitude so this i mean if you like roll all the way back and you think about like um <laughs> Fourier analysis, right? Yes. Oh right? Gosh. You know that any any um, waveform can be broken down into the sum of uh, of, of sine waves yes. of different amplitudes, right? Yeah. So what a spectrogram effectively is, is you take that waveform <laughs> and you break it, you run it through a, a Fourier analysis Fourier and then it gives mm. you, yeah, a Fourier transform. And it gives you over time, right, instead of the waveform, it shows you basically what is the amplitude of each um, frequency of each like sine wave that yep. makes up that that portion of the waveform. So yep. um, the thing is, like in, in Prat, for example, you can actually, like there are settings for you to, to like show formants and so on. So it will kind of like draw a little line, right? approximating where the highest frequency amplitudes are. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is not magic. <laughs> it, it really so isn't, you, no. 
yeah, you have to tell it, I want four formats, five formats. I yep. want like the, this number of formats under this frequency. Because yep. if you said like, I want like, you know, four formats under like 8,000 hertz, like you get crap basically. <laughs> the program doesn't know that you usually, um, you know, if, if you are going to cut off your search at 8,000, well, at 8,000, you're not really hearing most things that are, like, basically, even the highest um, useful information cuts out at about 7,000 Right. Hertz. Well, okay. I mean, yeah. we're coming to the end of the hour already, but, you know, yeah. going back to what you said about how computational linguistics, people kind of, frown, yeah. you know, people kind of shit on it because it's more computing than linguistics. But, I mean, is this just purely a function of the fact that we're still in relatively early days of, of, of the field. I like think, computational okay. huma digital humanities and computational humanities are only really starting to it's come true. into their own. I mean, there is a, a, a useful question, right? Which is like, I mean, the reason why Python is regarded as so beginner-friendly is that there is so much stuff, like people have already put in so much legwork to abstract a lot of the... To, to basically abstract a lot functions. of stuff away, mm. yeah, right, and um, stuff that you in you know in in other languages you would have to go out and either build or kind of like you know put together for yourself um, a mm. library that would do a lot of the stuff that you know you can easily find um, a, a Python library to do for you, mm -hmm. and I think it's it's worth asking right like you know if we are talking about again like advancement in algorithms, right. Like at some point, is there going to be a computational linguist who says, "Hey, um, I've actually figured out how to make, uh, you know, I've here here here's a library that allows you for uh, a a known language, right? It will produce the syntax tree for, mm -hmm. um, you know, a relatively bounded set of sentences." Right. That you give to it, and then like you know, over time, it's reasonable to to ask like, okay, maybe somebody will come up with one that will allow you to, you know, break down um, a sentence that you give to it, um, mm -hmm. in terms that a grammar teacher would yeah. approve of. I, I mean, right? of course, you know, this is not without its pitfalls. As we, as I yes. think I've mentioned before in some of the early episodes with population genetics, is that when you have yeah. this proliferation of packages that all do you know similar things in a population yep. genetic sense, some of them may not actually be accurate. <laughs> uh, I mean, there is you an still ongoing have to understand QC, what the... you have to, You're right, you have to curate yeah. QC. And yeah, there, there must be some baseline. And, you know, but I think it might be an interesting and pretty exciting time to actually get into digital humanities right now because, you know, computational power is getting stronger and we're, we're coming up with all these new techniques, new mathematical shorthands for analyzing complex right. problems. And I think it's it's... It's, you know, this is just teething problems that I think people are getting cynical about. And I think that, you know, as, as we go further, it's, it's going to become a very interesting field to work in. To be fair, there is a question of, you know, um, whether, how much it will change in your lifetime. And if you're getting into it because you're interested in the linguistics side of it, hmm. it may not be the right lifetime to do that. <laughs> well, I mean, again, you see how population genetics has, has evolved, right, away from... Right. Ronald Fisher and Sewell Wright, who were doing, you know, back of the envelope calculations using math that you can do on paper to, you know, what you're seeing now, right. where you have coalescent equations being performed on supercomputers and taking two weeks to run a Bayesian analysis that take two <sighs> yeah. weeks, two months, and it crashes. But regardless, right, the 
the the amount of time required for these things to develop is highly variable, but it needs That's time true, to develop. That's true. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we are coming up with the hour, and yeah. uh, I think it is a good idea to try and keep everything under one hour because <laughs> uh, I think the last two episodes we overran by like half an hour and then like forty-five yeah. minutes. I can't remember. Yeah. But uh, I realized that because Fireside FM has a hundred and four megabyte limit. Right. Okay. <laughs> the longer okay. we run, the harder it is to. <laughs> to keep I should just stuff point out. I was. I just remembered how to describe the coalescent. The coalescent is actually a really simple framework. If, okay. you, if you indulge me for a moment. The, yeah, sure. Okay, given a a, a pair of alleles drawn uh-huh. from a population of uh, 2N because okay. deployed, right? The probability that the two alleles coalesce uh, at, X, at a certain point in time in the past is 1 over 2N. That's it. That's actually really simple. It's, it's really simple. And uh, so the probability that they do not coalesce is one minus one over two n, right? Right. Wait, and if you do wait, this back in time, n, again? n is the, the half the population size. So two n is the true the total population size or right, the total okay. number of uh, alleles within that particular population. All right. Okay. Got it. Right. And yeah. so if you want to, sorry, no, yeah. So the probability, sorry, I, I I should rephrase this. The probability that a pair of alleles coalesce the previous generation is one over two n. Ah, and so the okay. probability that they did not coalesce in the previous generation is one minus one over two n, and so if I wanted right. to do this over time, right? If uh, so, if I say, okay, what is the probability that they coalesce after t amount of time? I take it right. as one minus n, uh, one minus one over uh, one minus one over two n to the power of t minus one times one over two n. Okay, it's probability, right? Um, and yeah. so when I plot this out. This gives this can be approximated by an exponential function. Yeah, it's that simple. That is really uh, that is very elegant. As as much as elegant yeah. is a yeah, I, I think um, it's uh, fair to say uh, this undefinable is undefinable mathematical elegant. Concept. Yes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's it's really it, read the Wikipedia page. It's it's really simple. It's really straightforward. But when you extend it out to you know thousands of loci, that's when it gets fascinatingly complicated. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> I think we will um, we will finish up End here. It here. Yep. End it here. Yeah. So this episode is um, I totally just blanked out. I'm like, what was I trying to say? Are we okay. at eight or seven? Um, we are at eight. We are at eight. So okay. the show notes for this episode, you can find them at monkeymind.xyz slash zero zero eight. And uh, we will hopefully see you next week, I suppose. <laughs> like, who knows happens. at this point? Yeah, know, right? pretty much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.